You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of Daniel, and as we do, we're going to come to one of the most difficult and important passages in the entire Bible, which is the prophecy at the end of Daniel chapter 9. Now, for some of you, this passage will be new ground, and I know that because some of you told me you read it last week and said, I have no idea what this is about. Um, so if that's you today, uh, I, I hope that this will, will be a, uh, a useful study for you and that you will be able to to dip your toes into what some people have spent their whole lives studying. Uh, For some of you, this passage will be very familiar, and you may have some very strong views about the exact meaning of every point in this text. My prayer today is that no matter where you are with today's passage, that together we can approach this passage with fresh eyes and with humility, and that God will give us the wisdom that we need to make sense of this challenging material which He has inspired and which is profitable for our training in righteousness. So without further ado, let's turn to Daniel chapter 9. And as you turn there in your Bibles, and I strongly recommend you follow along in the Bible this morning with me, um, we're going we're gonna to do some review as you turn to Daniel 9. Now, we're in the part of this book of Daniel in which Daniel describes four visionary experiences that the Lord gave him. Uh, the first of these visions we encountered back in chapter 7. There Daniel saw a sequence of monstrous beasts which represented four empires that would dominate the earth until the end of history. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then on the fourth beast, symbolizing Rome, Daniel saw the emergence of ten horns, symbolizing ten kings or kingdoms which would emerge from Rome and which in some way would continue the legacy of Rome's empire. Then finally, Daniel saw the emergence of an eleventh horn, the little horn, who is an evil figure, who is the culmination of Rome. And we identified this individual as the Antichrist at the end of history, who will falsely claim to be God, who will oppress the people of God, and who will be overthrown and eternally condemned at the second coming of Christ. And that was the vision of chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, we saw Daniel's second vision, Daniel saw a ram representing Persia, and this ram was destroyed by a goat with a large horn representing the Greek empire of Alexander the Great. And the vision continued depicting the death of Alexander and the fate of Alexander's kingdom as this large horn was broken and four other conspicuous horns for nations emerged in its place. And this vision also ended with the emergence of a little horn. Not the little horn of chapter 7, since that prophecy referred to the Antichrist at the end of history, the culmination of Rome. Now, the little horn of chapter 8 was an evil king who emerged from the remnant of the Greek Empire 2,200 years ago, a king named Antiochus IV. The Bible calls Antiochus IV the little horn because in his character and his conduct, he has a lot in common with the Antichrist at the end of history. Antiochus claimed to be God, and he oppressed God's people. And he also committed a horrible sacrilege in the Jewish temple called the abomination of desolation. 
Chapter 8 ended by saying Antiochus will die and Israel will be purified from his wicked influence. And that was the vision of chapter 8. Now, last week we began in chapter 9. And we saw Daniel pray an intense prayer confessing the sins of Israel and pleading with God to allow Israel to return to the promised land from exile and to rebuild the temple. And today as we come to the end of chapter 9, we see that God answers Daniel's prayer. And the answer that Daniel receives is the third of the four visions recorded here in the final chapters of this book. And that's what we'll see today in verses 20 through 27. Generally what we're going to see today is that this prophecy is God's answer to Daniel, but it's not the answer that Daniel expected. The way that God answers Daniel here would have been very surprising to Daniel, and it also points to an amazing truth, which is the plan that God has for his people's salvation, which centers on the person and the work of Christ. And so that's what we're going to see broadly today. Today we're going to just have two points. First, we're going to see that God answers his people's prayers because he loves us. And second, we're going to see that God sometimes answers his people's prayers in an unexpected way, which works out a lot better than we ever could have hoped. So let's just start with our first point, which is that God answers his people's prayers because he loves us. Now, as we begin today, Daniel is still praying this very intense prayer, uh, confessing the sin of his nation. And he gives this really earnest plea at the end of the prayer. Look at chapter 9, verse 19. Daniel says, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. And at this point, something happens. Something surprising, verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. So Daniel's praying fervently, and his prayer is startlingly interrupted by an angel. Now, Daniel has interacted with angels before. In chapters 7 and 8, Daniel had both of his previous visions interpreted by angels. In fact, the angel he met in chapter 8 is the same angel he meets here, Gabriel, who appears a few times in the Bible, always bringing a message from God. And that's what he has come to do for Daniel, bring a message from God. Verse 22, Gabriel made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. All right, so Gabriel says that when Daniel started praying, God immediately issued a response, and God sent Gabriel to bring that answer to Daniel. And that answer is a word of revelation, which we're going to look at in just a minute, meant to give Daniel insight and understanding. Now, what I want to do right now is just point out this fact. God answered Daniel's prayer. And why did God answer Daniel's prayer? Gabriel says, for you are greatly loved. The Hebrew word here means something like precious. Daniel is precious to the Lord. And so God answers him. Now, if we're not careful, our first reaction to this might be quite incorrect. We might say, well, God loves Daniel, and Daniel gets his prayer answered by an angel, no less. But I don't get my prayers answered by an angel. And sometimes it seems like I don't get my prayers answered at all. So maybe I'm wondering now, does God love me? But I would tell you that whole line of reasoning is incorrect. Because first of all, the answer God gives Daniel is not the answer that Daniel wants. We're going to see in a minute, God's answer to Daniel's prayer is not exactly no, but it's certainly not an unqualified yes. 
So these verses are not teaching that if God loves us, He will give us whatever we pray for. That's not the idea at all. But what these verses do teach is that God seriously and immediately hears and considers the prayers of those He loves. You could say, okay, well, who does God love? D.A. Carson has shown that the Bible speaks of the love of God towards people in a number of different ways. Sometimes the Bible speaks of God's stance towards this entire evil world by speaking of His love. God so loved the world, John 3.16 says, that He sent His only Son. Whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God in His great goodness somehow does have love for this evil world and everyone in it. But the Bible also tells us that God has a particular love towards His own people, towards believers. Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her, Ephesians 5.25 says. And here we should understand that it is the second type of love, the particular love that God has for believers, which is in view. Believing friend, 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession. That's not true of unbelievers. But believing friends, you have been designated to become a part of God's people, His special possession. Just as Daniel was precious to God, fellow believers, you are precious to God as well. And how much do you matter to Him? As Romans 5.8 says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's a tremendous, incalculable love. And just as God heard Daniel's prayer because he was much loved, God also hears our prayers, believing friends. 1 Peter 3.12 says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 1 Peter 5.7 says, Cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have towards Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And so I want to assure you, believing friends, that God loves you, and so He hears you. And so, pray, and pray with faith, and pray expecting an answer, and pray being open to receive whatever answer God gives us, because God is a loving Father, and He will answer our prayers with whatever is best for us. We come now to our second and by far longest point, which is that God sometimes answers His people's prayers in an unexpected way, which works out far better than we ever could have hoped. Daniel began this chapter by fervently praying for Israel. And I want to spend a few minutes giving some background to Daniel's prayer so we can better understand the answer that God gives him. At the beginning of the Bible, God called Abraham to leave his father's house and move to a new land. Genesis 12, when they came to the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. Decades later, God repeated this promise to Abraham's grandson Jacob, whom God had renamed Israel. Genesis 35, the land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. God gave the promised land to Israel and his descendants. Now, Galatians 3 tells us ultimately it will run to Christ. But in the Old Testament, God did say that Israel could occupy the promised land. But their occupancy was conditional. God told Israel in Leviticus 25, 23, The land is mine. You are strangers and sojourners with me. So long as Israel obeyed God's law, the law of Moses, they could live in the promised land and enjoy material blessings. 
But if Israel rebelled against God's law, they would suffer various curses. And the ultimate curse God threatened Israel with was exile. The loss of the promised land, the loss of national independence, and slavery far away. God warned Israel in Leviticus 20, You shall keep all my statutes and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. In Leviticus 26, 27, If you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. Remember that. It's going to be really important in just a minute. Deuteronomy 28, God says, You shall be plucked off the land, and the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And among these nations you shall find no respite, but a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. It's a fearsome warning. God says, oh, if you don't obey, there will be war, defeat, slaughter, ruin, exile, slavery, and misery. And this was no vague threat. The law of Moses specified how long Israel would have to suffer in exile if they wound up in exile, which they would. In Leviticus 25, God gave Israel a calendar, a calendar built around seven-year blocks of time in which, for the first six years, Israel could farm the promised land. But every seventh year, the land was not to be farmed. It was to enjoy rest, a Sabbath. But God said in time, Israel would reject his law and abandon his calendar. And so God warned Israel that when they eventually went to exile, Leviticus 26, the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are on your enemy's land, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So when Israel went to exile, they would remain in exile for an equal amount of time to the Sabbath years which had not been observed. That was God's very precise warning. And in time, this warning was totally ignored. Israel took the promised land. The kings of Israel became evil. They rejected God's law. They worshipped idols. This calendar was forgotten. And God sent prophets to Israel to call them to repent. And how did Israel respond? Well, we saw in Daniel's prayer last week, chapter 9, verse 6. Daniel said, we have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name. Israel rejected God's warnings until God's patience was gone. So the Lord sent them Jeremiah to tell them exile was at hand. Jeremiah 25, 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, I will send for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants. I will devote them to destruction, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Israel was to lose its land for 70 years. Why 70 years? Well, 2 Chronicles 36 wrote that, it writes that the, the exile was to last until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. The promised land was owed 70 years of rest, and so it seemed there would be 70 years of exile. But while God's word threatened exile, it also promised a time when the exile would end. Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. God says, when all these things come upon you, Israel, and you call them to mind among all the nations where I've driven you, and return to the Lord your God, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where he has scattered you, and he will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. God said to Israel, when you come out of exile, if you turn to me, I'll bless you in a way you've never been blessed before. Some of the prophets said similar things. Isaiah 11, 11. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand. He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Famous passage, Ezekiel 37. God says, O my people, I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols. They shall be my people, and I shall be their God. My servant David will be king over them. Then I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. And then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel. The Bible says the end of the exile was to be a time of glorious restoration, a second exodus, when all of the exiles scattered across the world would return to the promised land in faith and repentance, when all the nations would see this and acknowledge the Lord, when King David would rule over Israel again in some way. And with this background, now we come back to Daniel 9. And I want you to notice how the chapter begins. What is it that causes Daniel to pray? Look at verse 2. Daniel says, in the first year of the reign of Darius the Mede, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the, Lord, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel somehow read the prophecy of Jeremiah, or he heard it at the synagogue, and he reflected on it. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah 25, 11, The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then, after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation for its iniquity, declares the Lord. After 70 years are up, God would destroy Babylon. Jeremiah 29, 10, Thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. After the 70 years are up, God said he would bring Israel back. And so Darius, in the first year of Daniel, uh, Daniel, in the first year of Darius the Mede, the first year of the Persian Empire, looked around and he said, wow, God has punished Babylon. Babylon has fallen. That means the 70 years are up. So this is it, he thinks. The exile is coming to an end. The second exodus is here. The worldwide regathering of Israel. The rebuilding of Jerusalem and the temple. The renewed reign of David. It's all here, David, or Daniel thinks. And so he prays. Look at chapter 9, verse 15. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as that this day we have sinned and have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. Daniel says to God, you brought us out of slavery from Egypt one time, and all the nations were in awe of you then. The 70 years are up. God, do it again. But now Gabriel has come, and he gives Daniel an answer that Daniel did not expect. Chapter 9, verse 24. 70 weeks, or what this says in Hebrew is sevens, 70, are decreed about your people and your holy city. Daniel thought the 70 years meant the second exodus was at hand. But Gabriel says, no, it's going to take seven times longer than that. Seven times 70 years. 490 years total. How can that be? Jeremiah said 70 years. Second Chronicles 36 said 70 years were owed. But God warned in Leviticus 26 that when he sent Israel to exile, I will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And indeed, God is punishing Israel an additional seven times over. To be clear, God was not unfaithful to what he said through Jeremiah. 
God said, these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Babylon had become the dominant nation on earth after vanquishing Assyria at the Battle of Haran in 608 BC. And from that time, for a literal period of 70 years, the nations in that region served Babylon. That happened. And God said, after 70 years are completed, I will punish Babylon. And that happened too. In the 70th year of Babylon's dominion in 538 BC, they fell to Persia. And God said, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will bring you back to this place. That literally happened too. In the first year of the new Persian Empire, the Emperor Cyrus issued this decree in Ezra 1. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build his house in Jerusalem. Whoever is among you of all his people, let him go up to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord. The 70 years were done and the Jews were in fact allowed to go home and rebuild the temple. But you know, when this decree was issued, very few of the Jews actually went home. You read Ezra and Nehemiah, there are three small groupings of Jews who went home. Where was the rest of Israel? Well, if you know the book of Esther, you'll know that about a century after this prophecy is given, there are Jewish communities all throughout the Persian Empire. Many Jews chose not to go home. There was no worldwide regathering, just a small regathering. And yes, they rebuilt the temple, but what was rebuilt was so modest that Ezra 3 says, the old men who had seen the first temple wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the new temple being laid. It wasn't glorious like the old one was. Neither was Israel's independence restored. They were still under Persia. There was no second exodus that put the rest of the world in awe. Nor was the monarchy restored, much less the reign of King David, however we, we might interpret that. The 70 years were up, but there was only a partial return from exile. Many of the effects of exile ling lingered on. And Gabriel says before the exile can really end, before all these glorious prophecies of the second exodus can come to pass, God has decreed a calendar of 490 years would have to run out. All right, now let's talk about this difficult prophecy in detail. As I said before, this is, a, this is a tough text, and there are many interpretations of it. What I want to do is just work through it line by line and try to understand what the text means. I don't want to try to just impose some artificial reading on the text. We need to draw our theology from the Bible, not impose our theology on the Bible. So let me start by giving you an outline of the prophecy. In verse 24, we've got a summary of what God's purposes are for, for establishing this calendar for Israel for 490 years. And then in verses 25 through 27, we get a description of the major events that are going to happen during this 490-year period. So let's start in verse 24, and this is a summary of God's purposes in establishing this calendar. The first thing we find is the scope of the prophecy. He says, 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city. Daniel's people are the Israelites, and the holy city is Jerusalem. And so the primary reference of this passage, like almost all of the Old Testament, is to Israel and Jerusalem. Now, that doesn't mean that the events described in this passage only impact Israel and Jerusalem. That's not true at all. If you've read Romans, you know that the Gentile believers are grafted in, right? So much of what impacts uh, Israel in the Old Testament does impact the church in some way today. But primarily, God decreed this calendar to address Israel and Jerusalem. All right, now what follows next are six groups of phrases. And each of these phrases involves a Hebrew grammatical construction that tells us these are the purposes and the results of the main verb in the sentence. And the main verb is decrees. So these are the reasons God has decreed the 490 years. This is what he intends to bring about. Six purposes are identified. There are two groups of three. The first triad speaks of sin. 
verse 24. He says, 490 years have been decreed to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity. These three phrases are very similar to one another. The nouns we find here are the three most common terms used in the Old Testament to speak of sin. And these terms often appear together as they do here. And when they do, they usually work together to describe basically all sin. So God intends to deal with the totality of the sin of Israel and Jerusalem. Now Daniel, of course, has been praying for God to forgive the sins of Israel in his prayer. And he said, all these sins going back multiple generations, please forgive them. And God now shows he intends to comprehensively address Israel's sin. And what does he intend to do with it? Well, first we read he intends to finish it. The verb means to terminate or to destroy. Second, God means to end it. It's unclear what particular verb is found in the Hebrew text here. There are two possibilities. But both get at the idea of concluding or restricting something. And then third, we're told that God means to atone for sin. This is a technical term related to the sacrificial worship of Israel. It describes the results of an animal sacrifice offered for sin. That when an animal's blood was shed, the sin was atoned for. The sinner's guilt was covered by the blood, and the sinner had reconciliation with God, the God that he had offended. And so God has decreed these 490 years so that he could utterly conclude Israel's sin and make atonement for it. That he will be reconciled to Israel, presumably through a sacrifice. Okay, that's the first triad of purposes for why God has enacted this calendar. We'll see in a few minutes how this was fulfilled. Let's look now at the second triad of phrases. These don't deal with sin, but rather positive, restorative things God means to do for Israel. Verse 24, he says, to bring in everlasting righteousness. In the prophetic books, righteousness is often used to describe the character of God. It's also used to describe the character of just nations, cities, and rulers. And it's often found in passages describing the rule of the Messiah. And so the idea of everlasting righteousness here suggests an unending righteous reign that reflects the righteousness of God, creating a righteous society. And this is to be ushered in through the 490 years. Next, Daniel says the purpose is to seal both vision and profit. This verb seal usually means to conclude or restrain. It was used that way at the end of chapter 8, when Daniel was told to seal up the vision of that chapter for future generations. The idea here seems to be that the end of visions and prophecies will happen during this 490-year period. And if the end of the, the era of prophecy is at hand, that implies the fulfillment and the conclusion of all the visions and prophecies up to that point. All right, the last purpose we find in verse 24 is to anoint a most holy place. Daniel had prayed that the Lord would allow the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And here the verb that we find speaks of dedicating or consecrating something for the Lord's use. In particular, an object or a location which is extremely holy, which is totally dedicated to God. Now the phrase that Gabriel uses here is almost identical to the term the Holy of Holies. The innermost room in the temple where the presence of God was uniquely manifested on earth. But in Hebrew, it's not quite the same. It's very close, but it's not quite the same. So we have something like the dedication of a new temple or a new holy of holies, and yet it's a bit different. It's a new place and perhaps a new way of interacting with God. So the 490 years have been decreed for God to deal with Israel's sin, to inaugurate an unending righteous kingdom, 
to complete prophecy and to inaugurate a new way or place of worship. Say, okay, well, how is all that fulfilled? I'm going to come back to that question at the end because these are the results of the 490 years. So let's look now at what Gabriel says is going to happen in these 490 years, and then we'll be able to talk about how these results are produced. All right, look at verse 25. Gabriel says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks or seven sevens. Then for sixty-two sevens it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. This verse does two important things. First, it tells us when this calendar of 490 years begins to run. You see, the calendar was not already ticking down when Gabriel spoke to Daniel. The beginning of this calendar was yet future, and it would begin with the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem. This seems to be a reference to a decree in which the Persians tell the Jews you can go home and rebuild Jerusalem. The difficulty is the Bible records four such decrees. And figuring out which of these decrees is meant in verse 25 is the first significant interpretive controversy we encounter in this passage. The first decree is the one we read from Ezra 1 that told the Jews, go home and rebuild the temple. And there's a similar decree in Ezra 6, a similar decree in Ezra 7, and then there's a decree in Nehemiah 2 in which the Persian emperor Artaxerxes allowed Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem not to rebuild the temple, but to rebuild the city. Which, if any, of these four decrees is the decree that Gabriel's talking about? Well, there's a lot of debate here. But I think the fourth of these decrees, the one from Nehemiah 2, is the best answer. Because this is the only one of the decrees that we have access to which authorizes the rebuilding of Jerusalem, the city, not just the temple. Now, in Nehemiah 2, we're told that this decree was issued in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of the reign of Artaxerxes. And from what we know of history, that would put this decree sometime around 444 B.C. Now, sometimes ancient dates are off by a year or two, but it would be right around 444. So if this is right, this is when the calendar of 490 years began to tick. Now, the second thing we find in Daniel 9.25 is that this verse divides the 490-year calendar into three segments. You'll notice in the middle of the verse, there is a reference to seven sevens, or 49 years. And this is followed by a reference to 62 sevens, or 434 years. And if you add all that up, that leaves a final period of seven years, which is not described in verse 25. This is now the second interpretive controversy we find in this passage. Are these periods of years to be taken literally or symbolically? Plenty of good folks come down on both sides of this question, but my answer is this. Based on the fact that we've shown that the 70 years of Jeremiah were fulfilled literally, should we not expect that the sevenfold multiplication of these 70 years likewise points to a literal period? I think that's the safest way to interpret this. So we've got a literal period of 49 years, followed by a period of 434 years, followed by a period of seven years. Now, verse 25 tells us that a significant ha event happens in this calendar near the end of one of these divisions. The coming of an anointed one, a prince. Near the end of which division does this figure appear? Well, this is the third interpretive controversy in this passage. If you're reading the English Standard Version, which we usually read from here, it sounds like this significant event, the coming of this prince, happens near the end of the first division. 
the 49 years. But if you are reading almost any other translation of the Bible, it will sound like this significant event happens at the end of the second division of the calendar, not just after the 49 years, but after the additional 434 years. Say, well, why is there this disagreement? The, the, the reason for this disagreement is that the ESV has decided to translate this verse in line with the punctuation of the Masoretic text, which is the Old Testament in Hebrew. The other translations have not given priority to these punctuation marks because these punctuation marks were not original to Daniel's book. They came, about, uh, they came along about 1,500 years later. So these other translations have prioritized the plain meaning of the Hebrew text, which simply reads, until the anointed one, the prince, seven sevens, and, not then, and 62 sevens. So... This reading is also favored by the ancient tr translation known as the Septuagint and several other ancient translations of this text. For this reason, then, a majority of scholars believe that this prophecy expects the appearing of the anointed prince to happen at the end of the second division on the calendar, 483 years in total after this calendar began to run. And I would agree with that. Say, okay, well, man, that's a lot of numbers. What does this mean? If we want to know the fulfillment of this passage, we should look to what happened about 483 years after this calendar began, after the decree of Artaxerxes. The text tells us we should find an anointed one, in Hebrew, a Meshiach. Now, many individuals are called anointed ones in the Old Testament, usually kings and priests. But who is the specific anointed individual whose coming is anticipated here? Well, let's do a little math. If we start around 444 B.C. and we add 483 years, and if we reckon the 483 years as solar years, which is how we reckon years today, and if this figure appears near the end of this period, then we would expect him to show up in the historical record sometime in the 30s Anno Domini. Fascinatingly, some scholars have argued that if the years that Daniel's speaking about are 360 days long instead of 365 and a quarter. And that's how long years were in the Persian Empire, just 360 days. If that's the case, and you add that to the 444 BC in the month of Nisan from Nehemiah 2, that would put the end of the second division of this calendar on March the 30th, AD 33, which is one of only two possible dates for Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry of Christ. Either way you take this, you have here, 600 years in advance, an amazingly accurate prophecy calling for the appearing of an anointed figure in the exact same time frame in which Jesus made his triumphal entry. Jesus, the ultimate, long-promised Messiah, the one who is both king and priest, prophesied perhaps down to the very day of his triumphal entry. So the Messiah is to appear. More than that, we read something else will take place by the end of the second division of this calendar. Jerusalem will be fully rebuilt. There again will be city squares and plazas. There will be a moat, perhaps a trench for water cut through the city. And it would be rebuilt in difficult times. If you read Nehemiah, you know it was tough to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. So Daniel had prayed that Jerusalem would be fully revived, and Gabriel says it will be, but not for a few centuries. So what we see here is that within the first 69 periods of seven, Jerusalem will be rebuilt, and the Messiah will appear. But now, after these 483 years conclude, we read this in verse 26. After the 62 sevens, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. 
Now, this verb cut off is often used in the Old Testament to speak of individuals who are executed as criminals. So the anointed one, he, the Messiah, will lose everything. He will have nothing. He will be rejected. He will be convicted. And he will be killed. Now, we'll talk about the significance of Messiah's death in just a minute. But that's, that's the next thing that happens here in the calendar. After he appears, is he'll be killed. But verse 26 tells us one more event takes place after the death of the Messiah. Verse 26, And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now this would have been some news that Daniel would not expect. Daniel wanted to see the second exodus, to see Israel return to the promised land and forever reinstalled there. But Gabriel tells Daniel, in fact, what's going to happen within this calendar of 490 years is Israel will come back to the promised land. Once more, there will be war. And again, they will be exiled. And this will be done by the prince of the people who is to come. Or the people of the prince who is to come. Now, who is that? Well, this is the fourth interpretive controversy in this passage. There are two possible choices, and interpreters are divided between them. Some interpreters say that this is Christ, the Messiah, who avenges himself on those who killed him. Other interpreters say this is a reference to the evil figure we found at the end of chapter 7 and who is foreshadowed at the end of chapter 8, the Antichrist. So this is a passage where some people think it talks about Jesus and some people think it talks about the Antichrist. Wow. How do we, think about, how do we work through this one? Here I think we've just got to look at the historical record to see how this prophecy was fulfilled. Christ appeared. He was indeed rejected and killed. A few decades passed, and then in the year 70, the Jews revolted against Rome. The Romans came against Jerusalem. They besieged the city. They took it. They destroyed the temple. They killed a lot of people, and again, they exiled the rest, just like the Babylonians had once done. Rome destroyed Jerusalem. Now, frankly, I think it's pretty hard to argue that Messiah is the prince of the Romans. You could argue Christ used the Romans to punish those who had rejected him, but Christ is nowhere called the prince of the Romans. In fact, chapter 7 tells us the ultimate culmination of Rome is not Christ, it's the Antichrist. So I think Antichrist is the prince of the people who is to come. And long before the Antichrist appears at the end of history, his people, 2,000 years ago, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. And that's what Gabriel says is going to happen after the first 483 years of God's calendar for Israel. The rebuilding of Jerusalem, the appearing and death of the Messiah, and another exile. But what are the last seven years? Well, they seem to be the subject of verse 27. It says, And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So what is that talking about? This is the fifth interpretive controversy in this passage. As with verse 26, many interpreters have tried to argue that the figure who is in view here is Christ. That Christ, by his death, inaugurated a new covenant, and that this new covenant ended the sacrificial system of Israel. But this interpretation has problems. First, it's problematic because the covenant described in verse 27 is limited in duration to one week, seven years. Even if you want to spiritualize the seven years to represent something other than literal years, if you want to say, well, this is a symbol of the whole church age, it doesn't really work. Because in Jeremiah 32, 40, God speaks of the new covenant as an everlasting covenant. Second, yes, Christ's death did indeed end the need for the sacrificial system, but he has ended it forever, not just for a limited period of time. 
And besides that, when Christ died, the sacrifices were not actually halted at the Jerusalem temple for nearly 40 more years until the temple was destroyed. That does not line up with what verse 27 says very well at all. So the attempts to make verse 27 equal Christ, I just don't think they work. So then who is verse 27 talking about? Well, the nearest referent in this passage is the prince who is to come from verse 26, the Antichrist. Now, if this is correct, this is very significant for our understanding of this calendar. Because we've said that the first 483 years of this calendar ran from the 440s BC through the 30s AD. But if we're now saying that the, seven year, the final seven years speak of the involvement of the Antichrist at the end of history, then that presupposes that God in some way has stopped the clock or inserted a gap into this calendar, a gap which has lasted for nearly 2,000 years. Now, I can see that that, that that seems very, very odd. If the first 483 years are consecutive, why wouldn't we not expect the last seven years to be consecutive? But I still think that this is the likeliest explanation because it seems to me this verse is speaking of the final Antichrist. Now, there have been attempts by interpreters to make the figure of verse 27 some other Antichrist-like figure from the past to avoid the idea that there's this 2,000-year gap. So some people say, well, this is Antiochus IV, the little horn from chapter 8. But he appeared back in the 160s BC, two centuries too early for the last seven years of this calendar. Others have tried to say, this is Titus, the Roman general who destroyed Jerusalem in 70. But if you're going to say this is Titus, then you also have adopted a, a gap in the chronology. It may not be a 2,000-year gap, but it's a 37-year gap between the death of Christ and the fall of Jerusalem. Moreover, what's described in this verse doesn't describe Titus. He did not make a covenant with Israel. I, I think the best explanation is that this speaks of the Antichrist at the end of history. In verse 27, he is said to make a strong covenant with many. This probably means that he will use his power to compel Israel or perhaps the people of God more broadly into making a covenant with him, a covenant of the duration of seven years. But halfway through this period, this figure breaches the covenant by restricting the worship of the people of God. Now, I would tell you this sounds very similar to what we read in chapter 8. Chapter 8, we read that Antiochus IV, the evil king who foreshadows the final Antichrist, illegalized the sacrifices of Israel. In the same way, the Antichrist will restrict the worship of God's people in the end. Now, some people say, well, this points to Israel. I, I think we have to look a bit beyond Israel here, because on this side of the cross, the sacrifices of Israel are no longer valid. And since Daniel 7 tells us Antichrist will go to war with the people of God and wear out the people of God, Revelation 13 tells us he will compel people to worship Satan on pain of death. I take this as basically being fulfilled in the idea that Antichrist will outlaw the gospel. More than that, we find now another really difficult phrase. On the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Very few people claim to know what that means with any certainty. It is very ambiguous. But this does also call to mind something from chapter 8, verse 13 where Antiochus IV is prophesied to commit the transgression that makes desolate. This was an act of horrible sacrilege that defiled the Jewish temple. Antiochus set up a statue of Zeus on the sacrificial altar. He sacrificed a pig, the most unclean animal, to Zeus in the temple on the altar. And Daniel 9 seems to indicate that someday this will be repeated. Now, this prophecy has caused many Christians to believe that someday a third physical temple will be built in Jerusalem, which the Antichrist will eventually defile. That is certainly possible. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2 
that the man of lawlessness will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. That could speak of the defilement of a future temple building in Jerusalem. But when Paul in his writing speaks of the temple, he always uses that term to refer not to a building in Jerusalem, but to refer to the church. And so perhaps the ultimate fulfillment of this passage will be that there will be a figure coming from within Christianity falsely claiming to be the Christ. And that was the dominant view of the reformers. This is why they said that the Pope was basically the Antichrist. Say, well, what is the fulfillment of this? We can't know for sure. But what we can know is the Bible repeatedly warns believers to be watchful and to be ready. So we should be ready if the Lord allows us to see this happen for either possibility. But it does seem the Antichrist will commit a terrible sacrilege of some sort. But then he will meet his decreed end. 2 Thessalonians 2 says the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. You know, when Christ died, it looked like he had been brought to nothing. That's what the passage said. In fact, Christ had won a great victory. He had vanquished his spiritual adversaries. He had purchased us uh, for all time. But when the, the Antichrist falls, he, in fact, will be brought to nothing. So that's my interpretation of the prophecy of Daniel 9, and that is predicated primarily on the five interpretive matters I put before you and the, the reasons that I've given you for why I've made the choices that I've made. I don't pretend that this is an exhaustive or totally correct interpretation. I think it's very important that we have humility in the face of this. Right? If somebody like Daniel, who God had in, empowered to interpret visions, uh, looked at Jeremiah's prophecy and misinterpreted it, by my goodness, we need to be, be humble in the face of Bible prophecy. But I want to finish up here by returning to verse 24 and talk about how this calendar of 490 years brings about the results that God intended. Verse 24 tells us the events of this calendar will make an end of sin and an atonement of sin. Atonement in the Hebrew use of this verb presupposes sacrifice. And the only thing that sounds like a sacrificial death at all in this passage is the cutting off of the Messiah. Christ is the sacrifice who makes atonement for sin. And this is reminiscent of what we find in another famous prophecy, isn't it? Isaiah 53. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? People in Jesus' day didn't understand that when they saw him on the cross, he wasn't dying for his own sin because he didn't have any. He was dying for the sins of others, the sins of Isaiah's people and Daniel's people, the sins of Israel. As the angel told Joseph in Matthew 1, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. But what was not fully revealed to Isaiah or Daniel was that Jesus' death wouldn't just save believing Jews. He would save believing Gentiles too. Ephesians 3, Paul says, You can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So through Christ's death, sin has been fully and finally atoned for and defeated. But verse 24 also tells us these 490 years will see the inauguration of a righteous kingdom. 
That's what follows the overthrow of Antichrist, according to the New Testament. The establishment of the reign of Christ, who will rule in perfect righteousness, first on earth and then in the new creation. This is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's promise, that David would rule over Israel again. One greater than David will rule over Israel. David's ultimate and true heir. This was promised earlier in the book. Daniel 7, 14. To him, the one like a son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Verse 24 also tells us that across these 490 years, the era of prophecy will end. The Apostle Paul says something similar. In 1 Corinthians 13, that when the perfect comes, when the return of Christ takes place, prophecies will pass away. There's no need for prophecy when we see the fulfillment face to face. And finally, verse 24 tells us that across these 490 years, a new place of worship will be inaugurated. And that will be the case when we're with Christ. There won't be a veiled, inaccessible holy of holies. Jesus will be in our midst. We will interact with him and we will worship him directly. Remember John 2? Jesus said, the temple is my body. We worship God in the person of Jesus today. Now, none of this was what Daniel expected when he prayed. Daniel thought the exile was over. He had no idea about this other calendar of 490 years, potentially stretched across two millennia. He must have been surprised to hear this. And in some ways, he must have been discouraged. He expected a second exodus. Instead, he heard about an antichrist and another exile and the abomination of desolation. But what Daniel found out through this experience was that God had a much bigger plan than Daniel's expectation. And while Daniel's prayer wasn't answered as he expected it would be, he saw that God had a good and firmly established plan. And that plan being put into action was better than anything Daniel could have come up with. Because God has sworn not just to save Jews, but Gentiles too, and to give us an eternal kingdom of righteousness, a better king than David, a better sacrifice than the old offerings, a better temple than the one that stood in Jerusalem. Daniel prayed, and this wasn't the, the answer he expected, but, but it's good he didn't get what he was praying for because God's ways are higher than our ways. And so I want to leave you with two ideas today, friends. First, pray and trust the Lord. His answers may not look like what we expect, but in time we will find that he has given us the answers that we need and the answers which will most work out in our lives to generate good and growth and Christ-likeness in us. Because that is the good he promises us in Romans 8.28, that someday we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And second, know that God has a plan for history, which he is working out, which will work out for our ultimate good-believing friends. Every prophecy he has made will come to pass. Just as he predicted with precision, even to the, the day, perhaps, when the Messiah would publicly appear and die, with that same degree of accuracy, we can know there will be a second exodus for believing Israel and for all believers. We can know that Christ's unending rule will be established. We can know that someday we will be free from the presence of sin and suffering and sorrow and death. And so, friends, I know this was a very hard passage. But let us rejoice in the wisdom and the planning and the faithfulness and the kindness of our Heavenly Father.